please open your copy of God's Word with me to the 43rd chapter of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 43. On Wednesday evenings, I've had the privilege of preaching through the book of Isaiah, and we have gone into the 44th chapter, but as we were looking at the 43rd chapter, I was unable to give appropriate attention to the 25th verse, and so I'm setting aside Romans for tonight. We will hopefully return to it soon, but I wanted to deal somewhat with that uh, 25th verse in ways that uh, I was not able to uh, on our Wednesday evening service. But we'll read the entirety of the chapter, this beautiful, wonderful chapter of God's Word. Let us bow in prayer before reading. Our Father, we pray that the Holy Spirit who has given to us this Word by divine inspiration will now illumine its page so that we may see Jesus Christ, our wonderful and beautiful Savior, in the verse that we expound and in this chapter as a whole, always on every page of your Word. And help us now to pour contempt on all our pride and to recognize that salvation alone is in Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And so we pray that you will open hearts, the hearts of this minister, the ministers who are here, the hearts of your people, so that we may see and love and know and commune with Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Perhaps tonight we will stand as well, the 43rd chapter of Isaiah, this is the word of God. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes, who are deaf, yet have ears. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble who among them can declare this and show us the former things. Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right, and let them hear and say, it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed 
when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Also henceforth I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans in the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior, They lie down, they cannot rise, they are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, where I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself that they might declare my praise. Yet you did not call upon me, O Jacob, but you have been weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with frankincense. You have not bought me sweet cane with money or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices, but you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Put me in remembrance. Let us argue together. Set forth your case that you may be proved right. Your first fathers sinned and your mediators transgressed against me. Therefore, I will profane the princes of the sanctuary and deliver Jacob to utter destruction and Israel to reviling. Look again, if you will, at verse 25. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. When I was a boy of about 15 years of age, I was reading the sermons of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, volume 6 of the New Park Street, and I remember to this day coming across a sermon the title of which was A Sense of Pardoned Sin. Now, frankly, I'm not sure even what the text was today. I think it might have been Ezekiel 36. I don't remember the sermon. But even then, the title gripped me, for I knew I needed a sense of pardoned sin. I needed not only to understand that God forgives sin and forgives sins through Christ. I needed to know that my sins were forgiven, that my sins were pardoned, and I needed that sense, that awareness, that understanding to be deepened as I moved along in my Christian life. That's what you need as well, don't you? You need to know that your sins are pardoned, 
And that that sense of communion with God through which we come to understand that Christ has done this marvelous thing for us, that it grow, that it mature, that it become more a part of us, that our assurance, which is real and true, deepen over time. Now, as we come to this passage this evening, this wonderful 25th verse of Isaiah, you will recall that Isaiah the prophet is not only a wonderful prophet of the 8th century B.C., prophesying 700 years plus before the Lord Jesus Christ came into this world, but that sometimes Isaiah is called the gospel of Isaiah. He was not only a prophet, but he held up the evangel. He held up Jesus Christ, and I'm convinced that that is what he is doing in this passage. He addresses people deserving judgment. I'm sure you noticed. In verse 21, he shows what he desired of them, that they would be a people that would declare his praise. And then in verses 22 through 24, this is what he actually found. What did he find? He found a people that did not call upon his name. Verse 22, yet you did not call upon me, O Jacob. They were prayerless. Are there prayerless people here? Prayerless because Christless, because you do not know Christ. When Paul the apostle was first converted, the very first evidence of his regeneration was, behold, he prays. And notice also in this chapter that these people who are addressed with this 25th verse about forgiveness were weary of God. Again, verse 22, but you have been weary of me, O Israel. They had no use for him. Today, we would say they had no use for his word, his gospel, or his church. Perhaps there's some young person here tonight. Most of you, I think, know the Lord and love the Lord, but perhaps there is some young person here this evening, and you can hardly wait to be away from your Christian parents' influence or the influence of your pastors or of this church. You have no use for him. You're weary of hearing this gospel week after week and the preaching of the word even in your schools, some of you. Or perhaps there's someone else who attributes all of your blessing to self. I'm so tired, you think to yourself, of hearing that it's all of grace from first to last. I'm very righteous. I'm just fine. I know that the blessings that I have really stem from my own self, my own heart, my own condition. Spurgeon somewhere said, By so much as you think yourself righteous and holy, by so much shall ye be cast out of God's presence at last. But of all the things we find about the sins of the people to whom verse 25 is addressed that that I think is most remarkable is that God says in verse 24 that he's burdened with them. You have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. Now I ask, can you imagine anything more dreadful than that? Surely it's anthropomorphic, but it says something, doesn't it? about the depth of our sin and depravity and rebellion when God can say, I am burdened and wearied of your sins and your iniquities. And if God enumerated our sin, he would speak similarly to us because the human heart is not changed. We are depraved and sinful and rebellious and self-centered. Not one sin has ever escaped the notice of our sovereign God. We also, by nature, are a people deserving of his judgment. Well, that leads us then to see this, first of all. The Lord promises pardon to those who in no way deserve it. 
The Lord promises pardon to those who in no way deserve his pardon. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions, those of whom he has just spoken, for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. God does not pardon iniquities of people who are already clean. He does not pardon the iniquity of people who are qualified by goodness. The Lord pardons the iniquity of people who are truly iniquitous, who are weary of God, who have wearied him with their iniquities, people who have not called upon him, people who do not love him, people who do not know him, people who have no desire for communion with him. God saves the ungodly. As we have his promise in the fifth chapter of the book of Romans, he sent his son not for godly people, but for ungodly people. Now, the scriptures teach that by nature we are fallen in Adam, sin holds sway over our entire person, our mind, our affections, our will, our consciences, our hearts are evil from birth, that is original sin. We cannot renew ourselves, we cannot give ourselves faith. We cannot justify ourselves in the presence of a holy God. If we are pardoned, we must be sinners in need of pardon. That's the point of verse 26. God says, put me in remembrance. Let us argue together. Set forth your case that you may be proved right. This is the language of the courtroom in which God essentially is saying to those whom he intends to pardon, come into my courtroom. See yourself hopeless before my holiness. See yourself hopeless before my law. Understand, as the old theologians used to say, the mill of God grinds late but grinds to powder, and the judgment of God will come upon you for your sins. Understand this. Come to the point that you can say, this I know within my heart and within my soul, I deserve. You know, a true sense of sin is given by the Holy Spirit. And it really is a blessed thing. You know the old line from one of the hymns, a sinner is a sacred thing, the Holy Ghost has made him so. If you don't know that you are guilty, may the Holy Spirit open your heart and show you your need of a Savior even this evening. Because he only washes the unclean. But he punishes the wicked who have not come to Christ. Modern thought tells us that God does not punish sin. But the man who sees his sin knows better and is able to confess, even as we heard this morning as Luke was presented, that we justly deserve God's infinite displeasure and that we are without hope save in his sovereign mercy. God in his justice must vindicate his honor, must uphold the justice of his nature. And Christ bore the sins of his people on the cross that his justice might be done and the penalty paid in their place. He cannot punish me for sin, which was laid on his son, my substitute. Now, as if this were not enough, notice with me next that God describes forgiveness as blotting out sin. Blotting out sin. Verse 25, I I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. Now, the Hebrew word that is used here, mokeh, is a word that uh, you have read in translation throughout the Old Testament in many places. 
For example, the blotting out of the memory of Amalek. It is a word usually used in the context of judgment. You will not remember Amalek. There will be no Amalekites. That race will be completely blotted out. Well, that's the word that God uses here. Sin blots and stains the character. And we are transgressors. He blots out transgressions. Transgression means willing rebellion. Now I ask, is this not wonderful? That the promise here is that he blots out our willing rebellion. That God can blot out the blot. That he can remove the stain of sin. There's a possible allusion here to a debt book. God who knows all things, every sin, every transgression, every heart exhaustively. We are in need of someone who can blot out the debt. The New Testament calls our Savior our surety. That means that he is the one who bears the legal obligations of his people. Suppose you owe a debt, and another says, blot out his name from the ledger and lay his debt to my charge. Blot out the one, reckon it to the other. That's what your Savior has done. Christ came, paid the debt of his people's sins, and just as the man reading his ledger passes over the blotted names, so God blots out the sinner's transgression. But surely, even the believer hearing this, knowing that it's true, yet within our hearts, how often we might say within ourselves, but my debt is so great. Indeed, I do understand that I'm a sinner. I do understand that I have transgressed. And my debt is, as Jonathan Edwards so often put it, infinite upon infinite, infinite upon infinite. My debt is great. Mr. Spurgeon said this, having a divine person for an offering, it is not consistent to conceive of limited value Bound and measure are terms inapplicable to the divine sacrifice. Now, did you hear it? Bound and measure are terms inapplicable to the divine sacrifice. Show me the sinner, says John Owen, that can stretch his sins to the dimensions of God's grace. Can you? Can you stretch your sins to the dimensions of God's grace? Bound and measure are terms inapplicable to the divine sacrifice. His infinite nature gave to his finite sufferings infinite value. You remember how Paul the Apostle put this in the book of Colossians. When speaking of the cross of Christ in Colossians chapter 2, he says, God made alive together with him his people having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to his cross. And so the debt book is closed. Blot out his crime, says God. Blot out the scarlet stain with the deeper scarlet of Jesus' own shed blood. So that you may, believer, actually sing from the heart in faith with assurance, really believing the words, my sin, oh the bliss 
of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, have been nailed to his cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. There is actual pardon for every sinner who trusts in Christ now. Not a process, but an act, a clean sweep, a blotting out of our sins in God's court of law. Now you say, indeed, that's so wonderful. Why don't we just close the Bible and go home? Well, because there's more, as if that were not enough. God describes forgiveness of sins as forgetfulness. Again, look at verse 25. I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. But I says some trembling believer, my debt of sin is indeed infinite. Forget my sins? Lord, my, my sin, my, my sin is so, is so heinous and, and so deep and so awful and And it's against your infinite nature, and I deserve your infinite displeasure. I deserve hell forever. My debt is so great. But God in this verse says to you, to what debt do you refer, my child? Well, the debt that I've been describing that weighs so heavily in my heart and in my conscience, to what debt are you referring? Oh, that? That's been forgiven. That's been forgotten. That has been paid in full once for all by my son in his sacrifice on the cross. Do you believe that God means what he says? Do you believe that God keeps his word? Do you believe when he says to you, believer, that in his court of law, your sin has been blotted out? And that he does not remember it at all. Why does he not remember it? Because my sins were laid on Christ. All one must do is turn over a few pages to the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. And there remember how he puts it in verses 4 through 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Why does he not remember your sins? Because your sins were imputed to Christ in your place. Because he tells us through Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 that he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Because your sin was imputed to Christ and his righteousness record was imputed to you. He will never impute sin to me that was imputed to Jesus Christ, my substitute on the cross.
Christ's righteousness imputed to you, believer. Just as in Zechariah chapter 3, Joshua the high priest is covered in filth from head to toe. Zolim, as I recall the word, it means excrement. He is covered in filth. And God removes the clothes of unrighteousness and clothes him from head to foot in the pure righteousness of Christ. And this means, believer, that whatever God is doing in your life by means of hardship, by means even of discipline, he is not showing condemnatory wrath. He is loving you as a father only can love, but he is not condemning you. For God's condemnatory wrath was spent on Jesus on the cross. Not one thimble full of condemnatory wrath remains for you because Jesus paid it all. Why does God not remember it? Because he poured out his wrath on his son in your place who satisfied divine anger forever. In his love, he sent his son as a propitiatory sacrifice to be received by faith. So, what does the Lord remember if not my sin? Well, the answer is simple, but it's glorious. God remembers the merit of his son. God remembers the blood of his son. God remembers the perfect righteousness of his son. God remembers the sacrifice of his son. God remembers Jesus and what he did for you, and he does not remember your sin. Will you notice with me next in the passage something else? Will you notice with me the Lord's motive for forgiving sinners? The motive. We find it again in the 25th verse. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sin. He blots out transgressions, he says, for my own sake. He goes right to the highest, most determinative motive, and it's remarkable since sin is an attack on God, and yet for his own sake, he blots out our transgressions. What does this mean? It means that there is nothing in the creature that would move God to pardon our sin. That there is nothing in us that would draw out his love. It means that there is nothing in you or in me that would draw out some motive for our salvation. It means that he loves us because he loves us. It means also that God's motive is in himself, that God aims at his own glory, as we read in Ephesians 1.6, that he saves to the praise of his glorious grace. He who blots is a participle, meaning pardon comes from within God's own nature. It means that God's motive is not your work, is not anything that you provide, not even your faith or your repentance, which are his gifts. So will you draw inferences from this? 
If he saves for his own sake, what inferences should we draw as believers? Well, these at least. If it is for his own sake that he blots out our transgressions, give up any thought of contributing any work of your own to your salvation. You can provide nothing. It is for his own sake you contribute nothing. And so we sing with toplity, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling, naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace, foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. And if it is for his sake that those he intends to save, their sins are blotted out, it means that those he saves are saved. They're saved, and they remain saved. That those he intends to save, he will save. His plan is eternal. Christ died for his people. The Holy Spirit will call them irresistibly and without fail. And if it is for his sake, then clearly those for whom Christ died, drawn irresistibly by the Holy Spirit, will persevere to the end and will be kept for eternity safe in Jesus forever. If God forgives, who will condemn? There will be no double jeopardy. There will be nothing of this idea that somehow he paid the price for my sins and that he suffered my hell for me, and yet I will pay it again by suffering in hell myself? If thou my discharge hast procured and fully in my room endure the whole of wrath divine, payment God cannot twice demand, first at my bleeding surety's hand and then again at mine. And oh, how knowing such love, how knowing such love that all of this grace comes from the infinite loving heart of the Father, that the Son gave his life for me on the cross that the Holy Spirit irresistibly draws me to Jesus Christ and to the Father, how knowing such love makes me hate sin. How can I contemplate the love of Christ for me and what Christ did for me and not begin more and more to hate the murderers of my Savior? Well, this is an Old Testament text, you say. Does it really apply to me? Well, turn to a few verses. In addition to what we've seen in Isaiah 43:25, if we turn to the prophet Jeremiah in the 31st chapter, we are reminded of the new covenant when Jesus would come and would shed his blood for us. And in chapter 31, verse 34, God says, And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. Now he's pointing to the future. If we turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 8, verse 12, 
This wonderful New Testament book, so rich and full of the high priestly work of Christ, as he reflects upon Jeremiah 31 and other passages, we read in Hebrews 8:12, "For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more." Again, this New Testament book of Hebrews, chapter 10. Verses 16 and 17. This is the covenant I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. The account is settled. He sees believers in Christ as if we had never fallen in Adam better. In his court of law, he sees us in the righteousness of Christ imputed. God's character is behind these words. He means what he says. I will blot out and I will not remember your sins. So my fellow sinner... God's word calls you to trust in Christ, to cast aside your own work, and to believe in Jesus who alone can save and to redeem. Have you done that? Have you trusted in Christ alone for your redemption? Do you know your sins are forgiven? Do you understand that you are a sinner in need of grace? Do you know that your transgressions are blotted out? Do you know that he remembers your sins in his court no more. And do you know and understand, believer, that he has saved you and me for his own glory, for his sake? And you and I will be continually frustrated in life until we come to understand that life is for his glory. My salvation is for his glory. Now notice how he begins. I, I am he. In light of the Bible as a whole, we know that this is the triune God, the Father who has loved his people from eternity, the Son who shed his blood and rose from the dead, who intercedes for us and who is coming again. It is the Holy Spirit who effectually calls his people I, I am he. He wants you to see and think upon his character, his nature, his attributes. He wants you to remember, I, I am the one who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in my being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. I can do this. I can achieve this. I can accomplish this. I can do what I say. I, I am he. I will not remember your transgressions. I, who created the world, I, who clothed Adam and Eve and pointed them to their need of a sacrifice, I, who called Abraham, I, who led my people out of Egypt, I, who spoke to Moses from the burning bush saying, I am that I am, I, who sent my son into the world, I, There is no sinner whose sins 
are too great for him to pardon. There is no sinner here, no matter what your life has been. There is no sin that is too great for him to blot out. No sin too great for him to forgive. There is no sin that is too great for him to say because of what my son did in the sufficiency of his sacrifice on the cross, I will not remember your sins. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. That is God's promise to his people. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. Our Father, accept, we pray, our thanksgiving for the simplicity of the gospel and the depth of the gospel. The wonder of knowing that a child hearing this tonight can be saved for eternity. The wonder of knowing that the most mature believer can go into a text such as this and never find the bottom. Oh, Father, thank you. Oh, the depths, oh, the depths, oh, the depths of the good news of Jesus Christ. Thank you that you do not remember our sins, but blot them out. Thank you that we are not left under pastoral cruelty to think that somehow we are achieving our acceptance with you. Thank you for the revelation of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, through the work of Christ alone, not only in Romans, not only in Galatians, not only in John 3, not only, but also in Isaiah chapter 43. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for saving us. In Jesus' name, amen.